Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, but tonight, we're so very happy to have Kim from L.A. here, Kim Dower. I know I've had the pleasure of, of, of seeing some of her work when she was um, uh, workshopping her pieces uh, here at Skylight, and it was really terrific. It was a lot of fun, and I, and I know for, for myself, only having known her work as Kim from L.A., it was like, Kim? And then I was like, oh, Kim Dower, the poet. How terrific, you know. So um, we're very happy to have her here. Ladies, please welcome uh, Kim Dower. Hi, everybody. So if you buy three of my books, you get a raffle. That's, you know, that works out great. Um, thank you, Noel. It's a pleasure to be at, here at one of my favorite independent bookstores. And uh, I recognize a lot of my friends in the audience. Thank you for coming out. So, um, any baseball fans here? It's the World Series, and don't root for the Giants, but, um, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I want to read a poem. I want to start with a poem that's not in my book, just because when I go to poetry readings, that's what poets do. They say, I want to start with a poem that's not in my book, just to show they're still writing, <laughs> you know, even after the book is done. So I'm going to start with a poem that's not in my book, but it is in this great, wonderful calendar that just came out. Um, and this is, I think they also sell this at Skylight, so I missed the reading when all the poets did this a couple of weeks ago, because I was in Portland on my book tour, which I, those are words I never thought I'd say, so I just wanted to say them. Um, so this poem is called Game Over. I squirted too much mustard on my hot dog, and now I can't eat it, I tell my friend at the game. That's why God made napkins, he tells me. Wipe it off. I tell him I knew God made mustard, but I didn't know he also made napkins. I tell him once the mustard gets soaked up by the bun, it's game over. Even napkins won't help. He's disturbed. I can see in his face he's mad. I wasted a perfectly decent hot dog. And worse, now I'm doubting God. When did you stop believing in him, he asks me, his face twisted like the pretzel I'm about to put mustard on. Did I ever believe in God? Was God peeking through the window up there in Laurel Canyon when my son was conceived? Was he in my belly when they sliced it open so they could lift my baby out of his warm, private ocean? Was God in my son's hands when he pitched a perfect game at the pan? My friend's still talking. I was an altar boy, he continues. You don't forget the Eucharist, wearing the crisp cassock, snuffing out candles as the priest consecrates bread and wine. You don't forget ringing the bells until someone you love dies. Then it's game over. He tells me these things, our shoulders touching, as Manny hits deep into left field, the men on base run their hearts out, thousands in the stands praying, please God, please get the run, win the game, as the mustard hardens on my cold dog, bun stiff, I slip it under my seat with God's blessing as the first man slides safely to home.
That would be a baseball poem. <laughs> Game over. Uh, now I'll read poems that are in the book. There are about, well, there are not about, there are 71 poems in the book. And I'm going to read about 60 of them. I hope that's okay. <laughs> no, I'm not, really. <laughs> but I, I do love to read them, so just settle down and relax. Um, and the first poem in the book, I've divided the, the book into four parts. True stories, people give me titles, Cranky in Paradise and How To, because I think if there was more how to in poetry books, they'd sell more. So I have a how to section. <laughs> the first poem in the book is called They Took the Mailbox Away, and the title is also the first line of the poem. They took the mailbox away on Cahuenga and Clinton. I know because I wasn't feeling right. Decided to take a walk, figure things out. Remember why I love the clouds. Found my rent check still in my purse. Gave me a goal, a project I could complete. But when I got to the corner, it was gone. Just space in the place where the box had been. Where I've deposited countless bills, birthday cards. Where once I tossed a sticky, half-eaten ice cream dish. There was no garbage can in sight. I gave it some serious thought, but now realize the mess I made may have destroyed a young girl's last letter to her grandmother, stained a college application. What did admissions people think when it arrived with chocolate sprinkles stuck to the stamps? Worse yet, a love letter someone finally had the guts to send, smeared with butterscotch sauce, possibly obscuring the recipient's address, sender never knowing it was not received. When I saw the empty corner where the mailbox used to be, granted out of place on that isolated street, it hit me. The lives I ruined. The mailman's soiled hands. Thank you. Well, here's a poem um, that I wrote when I was coming to visit this bookstore one day. And there's a jewelry store down the street. A very scary jewelry store. And um, I was actually waiting for somebody in front of it, and I looked in the window of the jewelry store, and um, I saw this ant in the window, and I wrote this poem. The ant in the window. See? what I tell you? <laughs> the ant in the window. I'm walking down Vermont Avenue, attracted by the window. Odd engagement rings no one will buy. Tarnished gold pinky ring for someone's girlfriend? The pendant screeching with impossible stones. Then I see it, one busy ant racing between diamonds and rubies, sterling silver, 35% off. Yes, we have it. One black ant climbing over the giant pearl, negotiating its way around the elegant tennis bracelet, stuck in the beveled engraving. We will pay the sales tax on any purchase of gold. The ant stops short in front of the sign like it's interested to know about sales tax. Starts going faster, now rushing in a frenzy, circling sapphire earrings like a glitter addict. As the ant disappears under a brooch the size of your grandmother's breasts, I see the necklace of my dreams 35% off. <laughs> Uh, 
Well, here's a poem that, uh, this comes from the true stories section. Oh my goodness, I should be looking at my watch so I don't keep you here for longer than 90 minutes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. 20 minutes. Um, but all professional writers, they take their watches off and place them by where they're reading so that you know they are paying attention. Right, Al? I've never done No? It's a good trick. It's a technique I teach. I don't have a watch. Oh. Um, has anyone ever been to a poetry reading before? Okay. Has anyone ever fallen asleep at a poetry reading before? Well, I did. I hope you don't fall asleep tonight. But um, I did. I fell asleep at a poetry reading. And it was a horrifying experience because I think my head landed on someone I knew. And um, it's humiliating. But so I forced myself to write this poem about it. And it's called, At a Poetry Reading, Late Saturday Afternoon. Tired from a long week of caring for others, working, worrying, walking dogs, feeding mice, cleaning traps, harvesting crops, flying planes over deserts, milking cows, you name it, I'm tired from doing it. The sky is cloudy, it's warm inside this quiet room. Strangers listening to poems roll out one after another, lyrical, lovely, sitting straight in my hardback chair. My head drops to my chest, then snaps backward, mouth open like my grandfather's at Radio City. I was seven when he'd take me to see the Rockettes. Look at those legs, he'd say. Then his head would fall, him snoring, me mesmerized by the line of dancers glittering across the stage, one long leg lifting after another. Now in this silent room, the poet reads her best words, best order, and I'm seven again. When the tonsil doctor puts the mask over my mouth, count backwards, he says, his fist opening, the foam bunnies jumping out of his hand, and I was out. Was it the ether or the whispers of my mother and aunt that lulled me into a sleep my bones can still remember? It's so warm in here, so cloudy outside, and the mice will soon be hungry. Okay, wake up, wake up. All right. Uh, anybody here shop at Target? Their babies always shop at Target. Um, well, it's a great place uh, to find material for poems. And this poem is written in the Target parking lot. And it's in the true story section. It's called, I Love a Man Who Exfoliates. Standing in the aisle searching for leave-in conditioner, I see him, tall, giant-faced, cornflower blue t-shirt, his wife standing six feet away, holding the cart, his daughter squirming inside the plastic bars. He yells to mother and child, I want a good exfoliator, something just for me. I don't want to worry, anyone else will use it. Here, she says, pointing to a puffy white loofah hanging on a string, this can be yours. We won't touch this. <laughs> can I use it on my face? His giant face must take hours to exfoliate. 
What might he be scrubbing off? Years of sweat, worrying, people use his things, eat his sharp cheddar housed in its own lockbox in the fridge. He squeezes it to rate its coarseness, determine if it's capable of obliterating his skin cells. Does it have the power to sandpaper his forehead down to subconscious? I blurt out, I love a man who exfoliates. <laughs> I hope there's no, whoops, exfoliators here, at least male ones. Don't tell me. <laughs> All right. Um, this, this is from the people give me titles section. And this is true. Um, somebody gave me this title, just emailed me. I was asking when I started writing again, just email me a title and I'll write a poem. It was my little exercise. And people gave me some really interesting titles and I forced myself to write the poem and some of them worked and most of them didn't. But um, let's hope this one did. The title is called Bent Daisies. I see them at the store, stems wrapped in brown paper, green, pink, blue, yellow, orange, must be dyed, can't be their natural colors, but I'll bring these daisies home, they match everything. I will arrange them, green in the blue vase, pink in the clear, some by my bed to look at before sleep. Daisies, the M&Ms of flowers, impossible to cry when you see them, they are lemon drops. Positive flowers bring good news, not complex orchids, plumeria, lavender, tiger lilies. Those can bring you down. Beg sadness. Daisies are all personality, clean, simple, generic sweetness, no trouble. As I take the brown paper off, I am stunned to see my easygoing, fun-loving, catch-a-wave. Daisies are bent. Can't stand up straight, difficult daisies. I condemn them to the crummy vase. The one up there I can't reach. Barely give them enough water to survive this wretched afternoon. But later, when I glimpse them, falling over, spread out, splayed, they are dancers praying. I carry them back into the light. All right, let's see what else should I read. Uh, let's try this. Um, this is from the true story section. And it's, um, it's a true story. That's why it's in the true story section. And uh, this was, this really happened. It's a true story. And um, I try to read this very fast because it just looks like this. There's, uh, it's supposed to be one long sentence, one sentence. So. And the title is the first line of the poem. Huge rat in laundry room. Written on a post-it, stuck to the coffee maker. I read it first thing in the morning. My son wrote it. The night he came home with his dirty clothes, dumped them in the laundry room. The rat standing in the middle of the floor next to the washer. Looked up at him when I saw the post-it at 6 a.m. I wondered why he didn't scream when he saw the rat. How did it get under the cabinets? You know they can shrink down to the thickness of paper. Their bones collapse 
collapsing like years. They can slink in or out of any hole, crawl space, sealed, corner, squeeze themselves like toothpaste through a hair fracture in cement. I imagine its nose bobbing around my laundry, sniffing panties in the dark, looking up at my son who came home last night to dump his clothes, have a bite to eat, sleep in the bed where he became a man. This poem is called, If My Father Were Alive. If my father were alive, he'd be in his recliner sipping scotch. It's line drive out to left field, blasting out the window of his Hollywood pad, his parakeet yelling with the TV. If my father were alive, he'd visit on an early fall Sunday, tell me our son is beautiful, ask why we don't grow vegetables when we have such a great backyard, remind me he still had the sunglasses he wore in cadet school, he'd be talking about the future even though he didn't have one. If my father were alive, he'd be telling jokes to strangers in a Glendale dive. If my father were alive, he'd be scraping ice cream from the bottom of the container, chocolate sticking to his thick knuckles while he slow cooked corned beef, dinner he invited us to share, the meal we never got to eat because his heart gave out swinging his seven iron on the Griffith Park course. If my father were alive, heaven would be calm. The woman in the apartment next door would still be dressing up, her fuchsia prints shrieking into the night. <laughs> Julia, should I read my roller derby poem? Um, I only read this poem out loud once at the Beat Museum in San Francisco because I figured those people could take it, okay? Um, there's a lot of uh, darker poems in the book which I, I don't force on people at readings. <laughs> I say this for when you take the book home. Um, but I don't know if this is dark or not. It's not that dark. Really? I it's realistic. We have a roller derby player. Okay. Uh, this is from the People Give Me Titles. Uh, I had a friend and uh, he said to me, she showed me pictures of injuries. Basically, and this is true, but I didn't know what the poem was going to be, but I got the title. She showed me pictures of injuries. So, here we go. I met a girl who skates in the roller derby. She showed me pictures of injuries. Lobby of the Hilton, cold in Wisconsin, he tells me. Met a girl called Hot Pink Suede, hanging with Jazz Night Queen. The two locked their pretty ankles. He saw their bruises, wiped out welts, streaked their calves. Hot Pink giggling inside her drink. She showed him pictures of injuries. He could hear the swelling on her arms. Wanted to lift her up into the lobby sky. Couldn't get enough of her flying on those skates, tossed across the gym, him braced on the other side, wanting to take the hit full force, her solid smoking body. He closes his eyes, sees her flying. She tugs at Jazz Knight, dizzy, their short skirts singing to him. He's cold in Wisconsin. He watches them kiss. He met a girl who skates across his face. She licks the cut on Jazz Knight's lips. He tastes the blood. They laugh. Jazz 
falls off, the lounge into the checkered carpet, smelling of cigarettes, bad teeth battered with footprints from a million skaters rolling in for a quickie, showing pictures of injuries he wishes he was responsible for. Not that dark, I guess. All right, a couple more. All right. Something sweet. Sweet. First email of the day. <laughs> no, never mind. Um, I don't know if this is sweet, but this is a true story. Um, this is called Geography Matters. Taking car service from Delray to Miami International, 60 plus miles, Route 95, past palm trees, junkers, swing sets, gators giddy with humidity, and I have a driver who likes to talk. Fingers too chubby for a ring, his massive back dents the leather, eyeglasses from the 70s. His accent familiar, maybe Russian, he points things out, headlines each statement, let me make you an example. Turns out he's from Yugoslavia, where he says people are better looking. They look better when they come from Eastern Europe or from the islands because it's when people mix that makes them more beautiful. Let me make you an example. Back home, I taught geography, was well respected, didn't drive a car all day, though don't give me wrong, I like the people. They sometimes become friends, they like to listen. Back home, geography matters, here, no one cares. I care. I tell him, lying, trying to change the conversation. I tell him, I wonder why it takes an hour less to fly from LA to Miami than Miami to LA, but that only excites him, makes him make another example. He tells me it's quicker going east because of the Earth's rotation. It's geography, that's why I know, that's why I could make you that example. That's why I can tell you why the clouds move faster in the Florida sky, why I can't work at the rent-a-car because I need to be outside, even driving all day. And he takes out a pad, colored markers, blocks, wood, pipe cleaners, matchsticks, makes me many examples. A mockingbird wandering the roof, an orange blossom floating down a creek, a sketch of himself wading through a swamp, hands me a map of Croatia, grains of white sand slipping into the creases of the seats. All right, true story. Um, people give me titles. Okay, this was truly a title, a, a headline that I read in the LA Times. And it was the only time I ever said, I love the LA Times. Sorry, is David Eulen here? No. Um, <laughs> Um, it's called, The Nudists Are Getting Ready to Pack. That was the headline. Because there's a nudist colony in the desert, and I guess they were closing it, so it was a story, and the headline was, The Nudists Are Getting Ready to Pack. How do the nudists get ready to pack? Do they pack in the nude? Or do they dress to get in the mood? What will the nudists pack when the nudists are ready to pack? 
Clothes so bare of threads only the nudists can see them. Clothes without zippers, buttons, or hooks so the nudists can be nude again soon. For the nudism curious, some important facts. Nudism takes place in every corner of the globe. Nudists have beautiful clothes they never wear but keep as pets. China red silk blouses, burlap trousers, and gore sweaters, knee-high boots with skinny heels they put on leashes and walk. Nude areas are isolated from non-nude areas, so encounters with clothed people are less likely. Hey, look at the nudists! Our itchy turtlenecks clinging to our throats, we will never be free of care. Not even the weakest nudist would suffer. What on earth should I wear? For nudists, clothing is redundant. The skin on their bodies is the perfect outfit. You'll rarely hear a nudist say, should I pack that extra jacket? So there's a little nudist poem. All right, I'm going to read one more. And it's from the, um, the how-to section. Because I did promise you there are how-to... Now, how to find the how-to poem. Um, let's see. And Thanksgiving is coming up. We all know that. So, um, how many people don't like turkey? Ah, great. And this will help you. This will help you to eat it then. This poem is called How to Eat Turkey If You Don't Like Turkey. Okay? Don't look at it while you eat. Look across the table and watch the lips of others. Wonder what they taste like. Tear off bite-sized pieces with violent snaps. Feel the meat in your fingers. While imagining the skin of a stranger, dark hair just before you enter. Dip into gravy thick and rich as your fantasies, murky as the New York Thanksgiving sky. Gently place the turkey in your mouth. Feel the juices drench your tongue. Pretend chewing it will save your life. Close your eyes when you swallow so your hosts will believe it tastes good. Let it drip just a drop onto your pants, stretched with expectations. How to eat turkey? If you don't like turkey, think about what you do like. The hardest slap when you're not prepared. The softest kiss when you are. Your face trapped inside your lover's dream. Thank you. Oh. Does anybody have any questions? I wrote them all in one night. It was really fun. I was, I was reading your bio, and your bio said that you're, you started, um, you got your BFA in creative writing from Emerson College, and then you moved to Los Angeles, and you had a break from poetry, and then you started writing, and there was a, a damn broke open. Can you talk about that process? Um, well, that person knew me when I was writing at Emerson, right? Was I really writing poems at Emerson? <laughs> Limericks. <laughs> there was an old woman from Canton. Okay. Um, I forgot the question. No, I, I started writing in college, and I, I got a BFA in creative writing, and I actually taught. Um, I taught creative writing for 
for two years at Emerson after, and I guess I was a poet. I considered myself a poet. And uh, it was very depressing. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, I, I wanted to go see the world, you know, and go on a ship around the world. No, I just, I, I stopped writing because I think you hit a wall when you're 19. What do you have to write about? You've done, you said it all, really. You're writing the same poem over and over and over and over and over. And it got boring, A. B, all you know are poets, really, and they're really boring. <laughs> and, um, just kidding. So, that was it. It was over. I moved out here, new life, you know, new me. <laughs> uh, but I always worked around writers. So I, my company, I do publicity for writers. I've always been around writers. I help writers get their word out to the world. And, and I've, I've always loved doing that. And then, yes, it, it was sort of like a frost, you know, like if you were ever completely numb, has anybody ever been completely numb? <laughs> like after a deep freeze? And things start moving again, like you feel, oh my god, my t I can feel my toes. Or, you know, oh yeah, I have a twitch. You know, that was the feeling of like having to write the poetry again. And so I started keeping notebooks and writing things down. And then, and a miracle did happen. Which was, it no longer was a chore to write. It no longer was, I have to write a poem, I have to finish. It was just beautiful, and it has been, knock wood, they just flow out. They come all the time, they, and I love doing it. I just want to get home to do it. And that never happened. In the old days, I forced myself to write them, you know. Now, it's like when you start eating healthy and you like to, instead of the doctor telling you you have to, I'm not sure that's a really good analogy. But I'm tired yeah. now. <laughs> Any other questions? Jerry, did you have a question? Like, do you write in the morning or you just write anytime I'm writing one right now, actually. <laughs> no, I write, um, I do. I, I mean, I don't have a set time. But if, if, um, if it's at all quiet, I'm writing. I come home. And I start writing. You know when I write, this is the only bad thing, in the middle of the night. Because <clears throat> I wake up in the middle of the night, and I, I'll take an hour, and I'll at least get it down. And then the next day, I'll start to work. But I write it during work, right, Steve? I catch it under the desk. <laughs> I mean, something will happen. And I'll, and I'll say, OK, give me 20 minutes, or, you know. I just need it quiet, but I don't need it silent. After all, I wrote in the parking lot at Target. So, but um, <clears throat> I write all, all the time now. How many, how many times do you go over your, your... Um, A lot of these poems have been rewritten 30, 40 times. I take a writing class every Saturday, a workshop. And I will say that that's, that saves me. That's my, I take it with a wonderful uh, person named Terry Wolverton. Actually, this uh, poem of the month is something she put together and uh, game over is in here. But I go every Saturday morning and it keeps me very focused. So I know I have to have a poem for that class. So not every week because we rotate. But uh, I know that that two hours every Saturday is just about poetry and then usually for as much of the rest of the day as I can. Um, but I'll rewrite 
most of the poems in this book have been been rewritten. Oh, at least I, I don't know if I could say thirty, but endless drafts. Even if you just change a word, it's endless. I hope they seem that way. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, one draft. Yeah, Julia. I have a question about um, how have you found like this experience of being an author, because you work with so many authors, different, and like what's the sort of surprised you about being on a book tour and doing publicity for yourself? Well, good question. As I tell my authors to say for every question that's asked them, <laughs> do you sleep two hours a night? Good question. Um, but that is a good question. It, it sucks being on a tour. No, I. Um, how many authors here have been on book tours? Jerry, I know. Oh, you've been on a on a book tour, yeah. So um, I always say to my authors. I don't, don't complain to me. You know, if you go to a signing, there's only three people there, just suck it up, you know, and do your thing, and you're making contacts and all this, and, and I'm never going to say that again, you know. <laughs> because it's demoralizing, you know, it really is. And, I mean, you know, thank God, I've, I've only picked places like Portland and San Francisco where I had a lot of people, but I spread myself very thin in San Francisco. I did four different readings. And at BookSync in um, Berkeley, where I thought my son would be since he goes to Berkeley, but no, he was here at a Cal football game. Uh, you know, it's like, thanks, the book is dedicated to you, thank you very much. But, um, and I actually sent up flyers, like we made these flyers for him to give around Berkeley, and you know, I found them in the bottom of his car. <laughs> it's like, don't trust your children. But anyway, so there were there were five people at Books Inc. But there were five great people. You know, the poet Kim Adnizio and her friend. So you make the best of it. And we had a little circle. And it was really fun. And then we all got, went out and got drunk, you know. <laughs> but so the answer is um, you have to be dignified and, and uh, <clears throat> just do your thing. And... But it's very hard. I tell people no one will ever have read the book, which is true. Although poetry, if you know, if they want to talk to me, I think they've read at least some of them. I mean, all I have to do is read two or three poems, and you can say you read the book. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not like a novel where you can't pretend you read it, although they all do. Um, and with me, they all want to just talk about Kim from L.A. You know, how'd you start your business and who are your clients and tell us some stories. So I have to do what I tell my clients to do, like get the book in no matter what. And, you know, and I did, I do. But it's hard work being on the road. And I don't, I'm not really taken care of because I'm the one putting me on the road. You know, it's not like, you know, Random House. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Hold on a second, please. I've seen a lot of book people here, like, one of the most terrible things is like dealing with a depressed author, right? <laughs> you know, sometimes there's no one here, and I'm like, well, I try, you know, be a great, you know, be great, you know, just go out there, just do your thing, and sometimes an author is like, oh, nobody here, you know? Well, it's very hard. This, this is a big, huge crowd. I mean, I feel honored. I really do. I feel honored, but you have to make the best of it. If even one person comes out, you have to you have to treat them like they're 20 people. So you kind of have to look around while you're talking to them, you know, just pretend. But um, but it's it's really you know there's these new tricks I'm going to teach people. But um, but I'm I'm so thrilled to have the book published that I'm happy. I love the cover. 
Yeah, I'm really lucky. The cover's fantastic. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Red Hen Press, by the way, I adore them and kiss all their feet, all all the many Red Hens. Did you have a question? Oh, well, you <clears throat> Sure. Email me titles. I, I, I love to do that. But don't expect any money for it. <laughs> I, you know, unless they win a prize. Um, there, there was, remember what we did? I'll, I'll tell you this. Then you have to think of inventive ways to get your book out there. And I'm the, the inventor of inventive ways. So, but it doesn't really work that often. But anyway, I, I wrote a poem that's in the book called They Discontinued Carrots, which is actually a very funny poem. And um, somebody who used to work with me a while ago, her name is Carolyn, uh, anyway, she, we, she'd always get our lunch from Subway, and my sandwich was always the same, and it had a ton of carrots on it. And one day she came into the office, and she was very upset looking, very scared, and she looked at me, and I was like, what's the problem? And she said, they discontinued carrots. <laughs> So that was the case where I said, go away, don't talk to me for an hour. And I wrote the poem, They Discontinued Carrots. Okay, so it's a great, you know, it's one of my favorite poems in here, but I, I, I was too, it's exhausting to read it. And it's all the things about carrots. And then in the New York Times um, magazine section a few weeks ago, there was a story about how this PR company is spending millions of dollars. I and mean, they, they got paid millions of dollars by the carrot, the farmers, the carrot farmers, to increase carrots' visibility. Like, make carrots something again, you know? And so I had this vision. I could see my poem like being put to music and like the little carrots walking <laughs> on YouTube and they get discontinued carrots. So we found the PR company that was doing this and I wrote this, you know, really good email and I sent my poem and there's no punchline to this story. I was just completely ignored. But um, there's a case where, you know, thinking inventively really doesn't work at all. <laughs> so... Any any other questions? <laughs> Jessica? Um, so how do you write? I mean, do you carry something electronic with you all the time or a A robot. I have <laughs> No, I just um, I write I have a I have a a pads everywhere and pieces of paper and you know, matchbooks or well that's not how I write, but that's how I write <laughs> sounds a little weird. I write my ideas. If I get them out of nowhere, I'll do that. Um, well, I just throw it down on the page. You know, computers are amazing for poetry. We started, you know, in the days there were no computers. And to write a poem, it's so much easier now because you would, poems are words that just keep moving and shifting and moving and lines that change around and things that just get thrown out completely and it's this, it's just this, it's very like an interactive, it's like toys only they're words from your own head and to have to type them out and then like white it out, you know, and, the, and move it around you couldn't think, I couldn't write as quickly as I used to think and now you can, you can write as quickly as you think so with the poem you can have a stance and then move the stance to the bottom and move this up there and so I can like block it out at that one, that first time, and then read it out loud. You have to read them out loud to see how it flows. And the first two hours is really, you know, the life of it. Is it starts to breathe there and just move it around. And then over a period of weeks, it becomes a poem. Does, is that a better answer? Does that answer?
Well, things like um, the nudists are getting ready to pack. That's a Sunday morning. I'm reading the New York Times, the LA Times, and it's like, thank you. That's it. And I just go into my room and close the door, and I'm there. I have nothing to do that day, and the poem just comes out. Um, other days, like I discontinued carrots, they discontinued carrots, I'm at work. And so I'm looking at my email, and the phone's ringing. I like writing when other things are going on. I mean, that's the great thing. It's like, I think that's what I couldn't do years and years ago. But after you have a baby and you, you know, you learn how to, you know, like feed the baby while you're, you know, making a deal and cooking, you know, it's like you, I can't do just one thing at once anymore. This is really hard just to stand up and talk to you guys because I want to be checking my email. <laughs> just, I'm just kidding. But um, so it's really, it's very energetic to me to be writing and, and doing other, but then you need to be quiet and that's what I have my Saturday class for, you know, and I workshop the poems. I go to also workshops all over the country now. I bring, I've gone to the Palm Beach Poetry Festival three times. It's amazing. It's 10 days. Sarah Lawrence, three summers. So I've really, really been working hard at this. Um, having as many teachers as I can, studying with as many people as I can, because each one really has something to offer. It's amazing. Is it strange trying to maybe reinvent yourself <clears throat> as a poet, to have other people see you as a poet, not the publicist? You're particularly here. In, in there's nothing I can do about it. When people go, you write poetry? You know, I, I, you know, I, I'm not reinventing myself. This is who myself always was. They just didn't know it. And I, you know, the people who know me well, who knew me, who had me be their publicist, they're not surprised that I'm doing this. Um, I'm not... I don't talk about it that much with clients who are my clients right now <laughs> because it's like, wait, I'm paying her to write a poem, you know. So I downplay it. If any of you are going to call me about a book, don't. <laughs> but, um, but then people who are, know me know I'm, I do my job and uh, most people, don't, don't most people do two things, you know, like I... I'm a coal miner, but I also, you know, I'm a ballet dancer. I mean, isn't that like a typical kind of a scenario? Right? Well, we came out here so we didn't just have to do one thing. Right? <laughs> yes, it's really hard to reinvent myself. <laughs> Any other questions? We'll take a I have a question. How do you know when a, a poem is done? And I, I don't mean finished, but I mean like the first draft. Like how do you how do you know when you've gotten gotten it all out? Will you get will you write it all in one one sort of clump? Clump, and then, <coughs> then will you discover a whole new clump? Well, this I'm really curious about like the structure. Like how do you? Well, it's changed. So when I first started writing again, I wanted it to be done, you know. And so I wrote it. It was done. It's done. You know, that was the feeling. Cause, you know, and um, and now I've given it more breathing room. You know, I mean, it was. I always went to revise it when I thought it was done. But now I'm not panicked if I don't get it down in one clump. You know. Um, like I'm working on one right now. Okay, here's an example. So I went into Erwan. I'm sure we've all been there. And I looked around and I, 
And I got really happy because I got this title in my head, the people in the health food store don't look healthy. <laughs> and I was like, that's so great. So I couldn't finish the shopping because I thought I'd forget it. I didn't have a pad or anything. So I like forgot the carrot chips. And I just ran back out to my car. It's always my car, my car. And I wrote, the people in the health food store don't look healthy. And then that night, I knocked it out. And I wrote this poem. Well, actually, I read it to you, right? Poor Steve has to listen to my poems the next day. It must be torture. OK, so um, Steve, you want to hear this? Oh, god. Sure, Kim. Um, and I threw out the whole poem. I threw out that whole poem. I thought I had the poem. And it, I didn't have it at all. But it, that first stanza lives and breathes. The people in the health food store don't look healthy. Maybe that's why they're here. So I have that. But the poem is now completely changing. So it was a good idea, but the poem is now about, it's, a, it's, it's not a funny poem. It's turning into like game over. It's turning into a poem about dying and all those fun things. And, um, and my mother's in a nursing home right now, and it's every day is another nightmare. So I see that that's what this poem is really about. So when you have an idea, like the people in the health food store don't look healthy, it's funny, um, but it comes from another place that's maybe not that funny, you know, and why you have the need to write that poem. So I give it some breathing room. And, and, uh, and how do you know? Um, you just, you just know. It's done. You can't help it anymore. It can't help you. It almost gets up and walks away from you and says, leave me alone now. It's done. Now, my class, you know, I take them in and I read them and even now, you know, people will say, well, why did you put, you know, I would change and I block it out a lot of, t when I don't, when I know it's done, I block it out. When I need them, I let it in. But it's a process. Well, you know. Great writer. Al Watt, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we have one final question here. Yeah, it's a poetry. I'm just curious about it. Poetry, like writing a screenplay for a movie or writing film music score for a movie. I'm just curious about that because I write music and I was just curious about that. Well, it's probably more like writing music. Yeah, I think that there's uh, there's similarities in all kinds of writing. I think that with screenplays, you need an ear for dialogue, you know, and um, what people would say or what they would do. I think that all writing, they're all cousins of one another. Poetry is more like music because it sh it's got to have a musical element. That's why when I'm reading these out loud, if they don't seem musical or have some interesting sounds to them, they're not working. They should be musical. Um, but they're not like screenplays because they don't make it that much money like screenplays make, you know. So that's where they differ there. And if anyone wants to put my poems to music, just came from LA at earthlink.net, and I, you know, I'd be open to that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. What I'll do is I'll move all the stuff out of the way. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.